You set aside all your wrath and turn from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that all your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. You may be seated. I see that my young offertory found a use for my circle. Put it right in the center where God is. Wow, good for him. It's amazing. I, let, me, let me start by, by introducing two people who I love. My, my wife's brother is here today with us, and his daughter, Debbie. Debbie is the very first person I baptized many, many years ago in my very first church. And so, brings great fond memories to God's faithfulness in our family and in our lives. Even through all the struggles that we face, God is good. If you've ever been part of a sports team or if you've ever been in the military when you go to boot camp or any kind of boot camp that you might exist or might find yourself in, they always want to play pranks on you. And I remember when I went to the boot camp here in Calgary with the Queen's Own Rifles when I joined the military, one of the things that we were instructed to do, and, and every morning we, the, the sergeant major or, or our, our, our company commander would we go on an inspection line, and he'd always get mad at me because my boots weren't shiny enough. He said, you're supposed to be able to see your face in those boots, boy. I can't even see my own foot in your boots, but you're going to feel it if you don't get them shiny. It really bothered me, so I, one day at the canteen, as I went to pick up some stuff, I saw some, some of the soldiers that had gone through boot camp, and they were now in the battalion, which was kind of across the parade square from boot camp. And I said to one of them, I said, could you, could you do me a favor? Could you tell me how you get your boots so shiny? I'm getting in a lot of trouble. And, and he said, well, yeah, I can tell you. He said, you go to the canteen here, and you go up to the clerk there, and he asks for a can of elbow grease. Well, I did. I went up, and I said, could I please buy a can of elbow grease? And she looked at me and said, oh, you're a boot camper, are you? Well, I read this week something similar to that in one of the coffee rags. A customer at Green's Gourmet Grocery marveled at the proprietor's quick wit and intelligence. Tell me, the customer said, what makes you so smart? I wouldn't share my secret with just anyone, Green replies. However, his voice lowered, and he said, because you are one of my favorite shoppers, I will begin to tell you. Let me put it to you this way. Fish heads. You eat enough of them, you'll possibly become brilliant. You sell them here, the customer said. Yep, $4 a head. The customer buys three fish heads. A week later, he's back in the store complaining that the fish heads were disgusting and he isn't any smarter. You didn't eat enough, says Green. The customer goes home with 20 more fish heads. Two weeks later, 
He's back, and this time he is really angry. Hey, Green, he says, you're selling me fish heads for $4 a piece when I can buy the whole fish for $2. You're ripping me off. You see, says Green, you're smarter already. Well, I tell you, life is unique. I got a video I'd like you to see right now just before I share God's word with you. you hate when that happens. I watched that video for the first time this week as I found it, and it reminded me sometimes of my brother who has 16 or 17 muscle cars. And he often says, Gary, could you go and move this muscle car from my Phoenix property to my BC property or from my BC property to my home or just take it down and get it detailed? Or I'm kind of his gopher. He'll go for this, go for that. But he's a great guy, I love him, and, and he loves me. And I get to drive these at least to the gas station. But I tell you, almost every time I get there and he says, go and do this for me, I get there, the tank is empty. He, he just doesn't fill it up. And I hate when that happens, because then I gotta get my can and walk down to the service station and pick up some gas and bring it back to his car and go get it filled. But there's a unique story that I'm going to speak about this morning that revolves around that video in a sense. You see, that car had all that power, all that beauty, all the impressive chrome and customizing, and yet it was still dead in a dead state because it had no fuel. It was out of gas. It had all the appearance, all the, all the internal hardware, all the specializations, to blast out of the gate and perform some truly impressive feat. Yet it wasn't going anywhere. It was dead. For all it had been given with equipment and everything, the sports car lacks the one thing it needed most to be of any use. It needed fuel. Come to think about it, that's a picture of our lives as believers. You see, my Bible tells me, and you've heard me say many times, I am who this book says I am. I can do what this book says I can do. I can become what this book 
demands I become. I have to admit that one of the reasons that I fail that as I walk through my Christian pilgrimage is I've run out of fuel and I become somewhat stagnant. God has chosen you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower of King Jesus, he has equipped you with all the power, all the blessing, all the love that you require to change the world. You have it in you. He has deposited in your spiritual bank account love, faith, and endurance, and there's enough for you to withdraw every single moment of your life, and it will never run empty. We're powerful. Oh, I have it up there. I always forget to see if I got that thing going. But many times in my life, I don't know about you, we've often forgot all the power and potential available to us if we would just decide to refill. We're like an empty gas tank. We're like an empty gas tank. We read this morning, and let me read for you. If you, don't, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. It's found in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. You see, I'm old now. I have to take these off. And the printing is really small. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. I want you to just mentally underline that. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their heart will heal their land. Now let me flip back to that mental note I want you to say. I believe when you become a Christ follower, someone who has given their life to Christ, Jesus, the Bible says, I have heard your, your prayer and have chosen this place. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Do you understand that he has chosen you as his house? Jesus Christ has chosen you as his house. How come we don't feel that way? How can we get so, so down on ourselves and so down in our faith as, as the world unfolds around us and things happen? The passage says, if my people will seek my face and humble themselves. What does that mean? Why is it necessary? Well, I tell you, there is something which is blocking revival in the church today, something that somehow hinder, there's something which is going on that is hindering God's power, something the likes of which the only antidote is our voluntary humility. George Steffens, a great revivalist, said, there is just one thing that hinders God's power and stands as an obstacle to revival. That is unconfessed and hidden sin in the hearts of Christian people. 
in the hearts of Christian people. You know, often as believers, we want to to blame the destruction and the sin of the world of why God isn't moving. That is not true. God is not moving because it's the sin and unconfessed sin of believers. That holds back revival. One thing and one thing only that holds God's power and blocks revival is unconfessed and hidden sin of his people. Sinners outside the churches are not the ones who keep God's blessing at hold, at bay. It is those of us in the church who have failed to recognize and then surrender our own wrongdoings before God. I want to tell you, let me read Isaiah for you. Again, if you have your Bibles, you can flip to it. It's Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1, 2, and 12. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, and so that he does not hear. And 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us, for our transitions are with us, and we know our iniquities." Sin begins in the heart. Sin begins and grows in the heart. That leads me to ask a question with you this morning. What kind of heart is fertile ground for sin? What kind of heart is fertile ground for sin? First, let me say a crowded heart. A crowded heart. Our hearts are crowded any time that we allow our other desires, concerns, dreams, or worries, or fears to occupy the space that belongs to Jesus. Whenever our heart is, is, is flying out in places where it doesn't belong, 2 Timothy, says to, 2 Timothy said in, ver, in chapter 2, Verse 4, to, re- the, to please the recruiter, he's talking about soldiers, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of everyday life. In chapter 4 of Timothy, he says, for D- Damas has deserted me because he loved this present world. Or Colossians, set your mind on what is above, not what is on the earth. And first John says, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Our hearts can get crowded and filled with everything which is supposed to be the space where Jesus is. And we let the world and all of its dysfunction and difficulties gravitate towards us. We get caught in it because we're in this world. The Bible says you'll be in the world, but not of the world. And we will all face the dysfunction of the world. But our hearts cannot get crowded with those thoughts because it eliminates room for Jesus. And so a crowded heart is a heart that's fertile for sin because Jesus has no room to get back in because of the crowding of the world. And secondly, a heart that is cold. A fertile heart for sin is a heart that is cold. Matthew says, because lawlessness will multiply, 
the, the, the love of many will grow cold. Because we get captured by the lawlessness around us and we get, we get contemplating and our heads and heart gets filled with that ugliness, our own love for Jesus will grow cold. How many times have you heard, how can God, a loving God, do that? How could a loving God let that happen? When we're starting to ask those questions, we're looking at the world and we're not looking at Jesus. We're looking at the things that are happening to us and around us, and we're not looking at Jesus. And when we're looking at those things and have no room for Jesus, our heart begins to grow cold. 1 John says, Dear friends, let us love one another because the love is from, from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. We talked about it last week in my beginning of this series, the cry for revival. But I have this against you, Revelation 2. You have abandoned the love you had first. And how do we abandon it? We abandon it because our heart gets crowded with other things than the things of Jesus. And that cools our heart down, and we start to feel abandoned. John 14, 5 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I don't want to go into that. We've spent eight months looking at ten of them. Tozer, one of the great revivalists of the centuries, says revival comes only to those who want it badly enough. The problem is not to persuade God to fill us, but to want God sufficiently to permit him to do so. We need to want him to fill us. We need to desire revival. He's not obligated to give it to us. We need to want it with all of our energy. And the third thing I find of fertile soil is a corrupt heart. A corrupt heart is one that allows any impurity to seep in. And here, my brothers and sisters, because I speak to myself, Freddie and I spent uh, about an hour on this particular topic this week between the two of us. Freddie and I kind of, I mentor him every Friday mornings for a few hours. And we spent time talking about this. And we both came to the conclusion that there's sin in our lives that we've become so comfortable with it, we forget it's even there. We've justified it so many times in our life, and, and we look for the nice cliches that allow us to continue to have that positive thought, i.e., the Apostle Paul's words, where I do the very thing I wished I did not do, and we sometimes capture that verse and say, you see, sin doesn't come roaring into your life brothers and sisters. Sin seeps in. It just seeps in and begins to grow. And so if our heart is corrupt, if our heart is cold, if there's no room for Jesus, the next step is our heart will become corrupted and sin will begin to seep in. It won't barge in. We're not going to go all go run outside and have an extramarital affair. It's going to seep in quietly. Ephesians 5 says, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper of the saints. David, David, who was one of the greatest sinners of the Old Testament, 
but yet was the apple of God's eye. Why? Why did he become the apple of God's eye? David write this, after he recognized his sinfulness and he began to plead that God would make him whiter than snow. What was David looking for? He was looking for revival. He was looking to be refreshed. He was looking to be refueled. And when he was refueled, he wrote these words, I will not set anything godless before my eyes. I hate the doings of transgressions. It will not cling to me. It will not cling to me. But David had to recognize that the soil for sinfulness was alive in his life. His heart was crowded. His heart was cold. His heart was corrupt. And when he cried out to God, he could write something different. He could say, I will not allow godless in my eyes, I will not allow any transgressions to cling to me. Did he say he would never sin again? No. He said he would never let it cling. He would never let it bury its place in his life. So, if that's true, those three things are signs, fertile soil for a, a sinful heart. Let me talk about this morning quickly five things Five obstacles that get in the way of revival. That get in the way of being refueled by God. First and foremost, an unforgiving spirit. Matthew says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you for your wrongdoing." Where do we find that sentence? And we have prayed it thousands and thousands of times. Anybody know? Where? Who is that? Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debtors as we forgive those who are in debt against us. And then God will bless you. And when we're not doing this, and when we're holding unforgiven spirits, an unforgiving spirit in our life towards someone or something or some people, we block God's blessing because our heart is filled with an unforgiving spirit. Hebrew says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. We choose to withhold forgiveness because we see it as a way to hurt the offender. But in reality, we are most hurting ourselves by putting up a barrier between us and God. Think about that. Think about that. Often we think we're punishing the person who has done something wrong to us. And we withhold our forgiveness. And it puts a barrier. Not between you and the other person, but between you and God. 
A second obstacle is a spirit of criticism and fault-finding. A spirit of criticism and fault-finding. Too often we weigh the faults of others with our thumbs on the scales. What do I mean by that? I got to tell you, criticism is hard to take. Particularly from a relative or a friend, perhaps an acquaintance or a stranger, but we don't like to be criticized. We do not like it. But just imagine this. If you would, or what if we would, for just one day, we would focus as much on finding and fixing our own faults rather than trying to fix those of others. We know that famous passage of Scripture, right? Matthew chapter 7. Why do you look at the speck in your own eye but don't notice, or speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the what? The log in your own eye. It is so easy for us as believers sometimes to elevate ourselves above everybody else. After all, we got Jesus. We have eternal life. We're going to the pearly gates. That's not what Jesus wants. Yeah, you do have all that. You betcha. I tell you, I can't wait. But I'm learning while I'm here, and we went through 10 exhortations to help us to become what? BTVJ, to become the visible Jesus. And being the visible Jesus means let's start checking our own logs here. But you know you can't check them if you're not seeking revival. Because you're lost in the reality of comfortable. You're comfortable with where you are. Any kind and compassionate, any, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, insult, slander must be removed from you along with all wickedness. If you are holding any of those things in your heart, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is who? Is he not God? Is he not God? So let's say, let's take these words properly, and don't grieve God who sealed you for your day of redemption. And how do we grieve God? Bitterness, anger, wrath, insult, slander. A spirit of criticism and fault. The founder of the Alliance Church said this in one of his writings. I would rather play with fork lightning or take in my hand living wires with fiery currents than speak a reckless word against any servant of Christ or idly replete the slanderous darts that thousands of Christians are hurling at each other to the hurt of their own souls. How quickly we begin to judge each other. 
and A.B. Simpson pens it correctly, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting your own soul. Thirdly, lack of restitution. Restitution is so often forgotten and lost in the Christian principle in the 21st century. Yet we see restitution as important from the very beginning when the first sacrifice was made and given to God. Sacrifice was for the restitution in the Old Testament of the Jewish people. They had to pay restitution. Let me say this to you. Simply asking or even receiving forgiveness is a beginning, not an end. Where restitution is appropriate. Forgiveness, giving it or receiving it, is not an end when retribution or restitution is required. I don't know what restitution means in each circumstance. I know what it means between my wife and I, that we make restitution with each other in many different things. Restitution is the action step of receiving or giving forgiveness. It's the action step. Psalm 51, as we read earlier this morning, says, Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit so when I, teach the rebellious, when I teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Give me a willing spirit. That's refueling. Fourth, an unwillingness to sacrifice. We're unwilling to sacrifice. Sacrifice is not easy. Forgiveness is a sacrifice. Genuinely forgiving someone means you're going to sacrifice you for the sake of the other one. Jesus said in Luke, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Sacrifice is bearing the cross of Jesus when you are wronged, when you are hurt, when you are destroyed. You take that cross upon your soldiers and you forgive and offer restitution. The Christian walk is not an easy walk, but it's the walk that will change the world. There is no other walk that will change the world. And so an unwillingness to sacrifice is an obstacle. Once more, I must confess I have allowed my old self to rise from its ashes only to have a humble, only to humbly come before Christ and have to put it to get death one more time. Revival is so misunderstood. I like this quote that I found, which I think describes the modern-day television revivalists. We have reached the place where one plays a handsaw and another gives a life story, gathering a big crowd, and we call that revival. No, that is not revival. That is a farce. You need to understand that revival does not start in a crowd. Revival starts by an individual experience and spreads to the crowd. I've often heard Christian brothers and friends of mine say, well, 
you know, let's go to one of those revival meetings. I say, what for? To get revived. Well, if you go there, before you get revived, you're going to turn that revival session into a farce. Go to revival because you've been revived. Perhaps today is the day that you need to put something down and get revived. And finally, quickly, an unwillingness to allow sufficient time for God to work. This is the tough one. Because when we speak about being revived, we want it right now. We live in an instant society. I mean, technology now is pretty cool. My wife and I can be across this country, and yet we can talk to each other in 30 seconds if she will turn her cell phone on. I can text her, and she can text me. I can phone her, and she can phone me. I want to tell you that my brother, who is working, has created his second company here in Calgary called App Colony, and he's creating an app for, the, for you if you have iPhones. And you can pick up that app, and you can put your grocery list in your application. You can tell them what store you're going to, and immediately that application will spread out whatever aisle and whatever place that grocery item is. You can just go right there. I say, hallelujah. I'm a man. I say, great. But we're so accustomed in the 21st century to instant resolve. And we don't give us, we, we don't allow God to have sufficient time to work in your life where those hidden sins and those hidden pebbles are that you have kind of just covered up with acceptability. It takes time for Him to grind in there by His Spirit and start to bring those to the surface so that you can face Him with humility and say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for setting me free of that. George Stevens said this, it takes three weeks to hatch a chicken from an egg. Now you're going to see this at the seniors. Take note here. That is the law of nature. The laws of spirit are closely allied. If you put eggs under a hen for just one week, you will not have chickens running around, but have something that smells bad. It takes God time to humble the idols in our hearts and to send his spirit to work with us to first of all identify us that it is a sin so that we can agree with him and be cleansed. If we tell God we don't care how long it takes but that we will pray until he pours out his blessings he longs to give us, then a heaven-sent revival will come into your heart. A heaven-sent revival will come into your heart. How is your heart today? Mine's feeling pretty happy after yesterday. Is there any part of it that's crowded, cold, or corrupt? Are some people around you, even loved ones, have destroyed you inside? Don't let it. 
Is there anything for which you harbor an unforgiving spirit towards someone? Even someone who loves you and is close to you? I tell young people when I marry them and I go through my counseling sessions with them, and this is one of the things, do as I say, not do as I do. But I say in your first five years of marriage, young people, a couple who pray together stay together. A couple who pray apart fall apart. It's a principle that young married couples need to understand because they're all filled with the googly google hormones and all those things that go with those early years of marriage. But that doesn't last. That doesn't last. A spirit of criticism or fault-finding, do you have that in which you have are withheld appropriate restitution for someone who, who needs to be restored? Have you demonstrated an unwillingness to sacrifice? To take upon your shoulders the burdens of others? Have you been too impatient or so self-focused to allow God sufficient time to work his revival in you? I started a little circle last week and said I'm going to have it here for the month while I do through this series. And I said last week that the best way for revival to happen in TPC, Thornhill Baptist Church for visitors, is to stand in the middle of this circle and pray, seeking God's face, this simple prayer. Revive Let revival start in this circle. And you notice you're the only one there. Let revival start in this circle. So the circle's there again this week. And I'm going to leave it there this month. And I continue to challenge you and say to you, if you really want revival... If you want a place to start, because it's not going to come instantly, but if you want a place to start, find some time this week, even today, even after the service, stand in that circle and seek a prayer of revival for you. Don't worry about others. And Baptists, we're so scared to do something in front of each other. We think somehow this is so bad. But I challenge you. You have all the power, all the love, all the faith, all the endurance in your bank account in heaven, but you may need to be refueled. You may be just plain out. I don't care what age you are. If God is speaking to you, then follow his voice. Follow his voice. Is he calling you to revival? Is he calling you to be refueled? Then respond. A lady who I've come to admire in our church came up to me last Sunday after church. And she said, Pastor Gary, I have a hula hoop at home. And I thought, 
oh, she's going to tell me that I should put the hula hoop up there. I said, yeah, that's a nice perfect circle because I don't do very well. But that wasn't what she said. She said, Pastor, I'm going to go home today. I'm going to pull out my hula hoop. I'm going to put it in my bedroom. And every morning when I wake up, I'm going to stand in the middle of that hula hoop. And I'm going to say, God, revive me today. I love you. She knows who I'm talking to. Well, I want to tell you that revival started in her her heart at that conversation at the back of the room. I don't know what God's going to do with it, but he's going to do something special. I'll continue next week with a heart. This is one was a, a heart that's fertile for obstacles. I'm going to talk next week about a heart that's ready for revival. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And as we gather to sing our closing song, revive us again, Father. May it be a spiritual prayer. And so, Father, move amongst us, I pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.